During the Great Awakening, which swept the church on both sides of the Atlantic, that move of the Spirit of God in the 1700s, one of the great questions that was raised was, what is the nature of true Christian piety? What is genuine Christian spirituality look like? And I've already alluded to, or mentioned actually, one of the great responses to those, that question, and that was Jonathan Edwards's book, The Religious Affections, in which he sought to discern, how does the Holy Spirit manifest himself in a believer's life? And as I've already mentioned, he gave 12 signs of true piety, the last of which was this. It was drawn from the text of Titus 2.14, in which uh, Edwards emphasized that Christ's people not only do good works, but they are zealous for good works. Obedience, Edwards could go on to say, good works, good fruits, are to be taken as a sure evidence to our consciences of a true principle of grace in dwelling the heart. In fact, Edwards would say that Christian practice, being zealous for good works, is the chief of all the signs of grace, the principal sign by which they determine God's work in the life. Sixty years later, in the early 19th century, his grandson, Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale, who also had known Revival Blessing, he had gone to the school after uh, the, uh, uh, the 17, in the 1790s when a significant wave of infidelity had gone through many of the colleges uh, and uh, schools in the United States, where at Yale the students called each other by the nicknames of Voltaire, Rousseau, D'Alembert, Diderot, all of these atheists or agnostics of the uh, French Revolution. And Timothy Dwight, through uh, solid preaching and teaching in chapel and classes, saw God do a great work of revival. In 1816, um, he preached the sermon to the students who were receiving their baccalaureate that year on doing good. He based his remarks on Galatians 6.10 and argued it is the duty of believers to labor in the doing of good works with firm resolution and energy. And then he went on to give examples of what kind of good works does God call us to. And among them, he said things like, we need to befriend educational endeavors, make sure that men and women learn uh, the basics of literacy. In particular, he emphasized the importance of supporting Sunday schools. We need to be peacemakers at large in our society. He's writing this shortly after the War of 1812-1814, which had racked the North American continent. We need to be men and women who help the poor. Uh, his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, had said one of the key things he felt about that indicated that the revival was genuine in his days was he noticed that there was a shift in thinking about in terms of those who are wealthy in their relationship to the poor. We need to share the gospel with other men and women. We need to support pastors and ministers. We need to support ministries that were seeking to evangelize the lost. And this is all that the, in the, the list of things that Timothy Dwight emphasizes that fall under this title on doing good. Now, in the 18th century, uh, evangelicals would have readily concurred 
with both of these sermons. And you find in the 18th and 19th century, evangelicals, and especially those who are reformed, creating a host of societies to do good in various areas of social life, establishing orphanages, providing organized support for the poor and destitute, for war widows, for immigrants. In Scotland, three-quarters of the people imprisoned in Scotland in the 1820s were there because of harsh debt laws. If you ended up as a debtor, you'd be sent to debtor's prison. And uh, so societies were organized to seek the relief of such people and actually seek the release of them when they were imprisoned for small debts, striving to make barbarous sports like bear baiting, where a bear would be chained, placed in a pit, and dogs used to savage it to death, or bull baiting, the same, make, striving to make such sports, barbarous sports, illegal. It would take us too far afield. I'm going to come back to the 18th century because I think it illustrates for us the believer's duty in the larger social framework of doing good. But in the course of the late 19th, early 20th century, in the struggle of the Reformed communities against uh, um, liberal theology, there came to be a, uh, a split almost where those who are conservative maintained a conservative theology but lost the emphasis on the doing of good works. And that became a mark in their minds of liberalism. But the truth of the matter is, you go back, there is a much more holistic perspective in the 18th and 19th century where the doing of good works is tied into the gospel. The gospel issues in transformed lives and lives that do good in society and to their neighbors. Now, the great issue in the 18th century, and I'm going to focus on Great Britain, but it's also the great issue in the 19th century up until the war, uh, the Civil War, is the issue of the slave trade and the issue of the owning of slaves. And I want to follow this through. I'm, I'm focusing on one specific example to illustrate that in the Reformed community, there has been a rich sense of the necessity of Christians translating their faith into concrete works of good in the larger society. It is evangelicals of which the Reformed believers play a key role that bring the slave trade to an end. That's what I'm going to focus on that one issue. There's the larger issue of slavery itself. There is the larger issue of why is it that the example of Britain is not followed in America? There are economic issues. And why is it that Northern Reformed believers can see their way clear on this issue and Southern Reformed believers cannot? And those are larger questions, which I think are well-deserving of answer they're not easy questions to answer. They remind us that the study of the history of the Reformed community is sometimes a complex issue, as is the history of the study, uh, as is the study of any history. There is complexity. Why? Because we're dealing with human beings who are complex individuals. But I want to make one critical point, which is that there, there is in, the, in our history 
some fabulous examples of reformed men and women taking seriously the, the necessity and the rightness of doing good in the larger sphere of society. Now, I want to spend a little time looking at the slave trade. We've something that we have long forgotten in some respects, something of the horror of the slave trade. And then I want to talk about how reformed believers began to marshal prayer and action to bring the slave trade to an end. And I want to focus on one man, a man named Abraham Booth, a Calvinist pastor in Britain, in London, in the 1760s, through to his death in 1806. Now, the English-speaking world entered into the slave trade probably... Uh, the earliest entry is 1562, when a man named John Hawkins, an Elizabethan adventurer, if you are familiar with the history of that period of time, you'll know that there were a number of Elizabethan sailors, Martin Frobisher, Francis Drake, um, explorers, sometimes pirates. Uh, they did much to expand Britain's control of the seas. One of them was uh, John Hawkins, who took a shipload of West Africans from a Spanish ship, captured the Spanish ship, took the West Africans on board who had been captured in West Africa, and sold them in what is now the Dominican Republic. We're told that Elizabeth I, the queen, was not too impressed with his actions. And in fact, for the next 50 to 60 years, one of the things that the British prided themselves on was the fact that while other Europeans were involved in this horrific trade in human life. They were not. But that would change. And the change came in the 1660s and later in the 17th century when Britain began to acquire possessions in the Caribbean. A number of islands like Barbados and Jamaica, which they began to realize pretty quickly, could yield significant financial remuneration because of the sugar crop on these, on these islands. Initially, the English turned to one of their fellow British groups, the Irish. They sought to encourage the Irish to go down and work the plantations. Well, if you know anything about the Irish, the Celtic background, very fair of skin. I can still remember my mother burning to a crisp whenever she went out into the sun for any length of time. There was no way the Irish were going to be able to, to, to uh, work these plantations. And so the British found themselves slowly, bit by bit, being drawn into this iniquitous traffic of human souls across the Atlantic that the Spanish and the Portuguese had initiated to work their farms and plantations in Central and South America. In fact, so involved did the English-speaking people become that they became, by the 18th century, of all the European powers, the most involved in the slave trade. In fact, in the final decades of the 18th century, they were transporting up close to 45,000 men and women from the uh, African, uh, West Africa, the Gold Coast, to the Caribbean and the American South a year. Britain was responsible for transporting some 3 million enslaved Africans to the New World. The critical issue for them was financial. And it, the, this whole slave trade became built into the fabric of British society. 
And so when the evangelicals and reformed believers come along in the 18th century and begin to challenge it publicly in preaching and in petitions and in prayer and in concrete action in Parliament, they are going against something that the British government sees as absolutely vital to the British economy. Take Jamaica, for example. It was taken from the Spanish by the British in 1655. By 1700, it was home to 45,000 slaves. By 1775, there were close to 250,000 enslaved Africans, as opposed to a white population of about 18,000. The sugar revenue per year, and this is estimated uh, pounds in that period of time, to get a contemporary value, you'd have to multiply by about 100 to 150. The sugar revenue per year was about 1.6 million pounds a year. So we're looking at probably somewhere around uh, $250 million a year were flowing out of the economy of Jamaica. That's just one of the various islands. Sailors or ships would sail from a number of ports in England, London, Bristol, Liverpool. These ports became wealthy, especially Liverpool and Bristol, on the slave trade. They would, slave, they would go down to West Africa. They would take various cheap goods that they would sell then to Africans, middlemen. One of the things I think is important as we think about this horrific event in uh, the history of the West is that it's not simply a, a European white issue, that many of the Africans themselves sold their fellow Africans into slavery, whom they had captured in wars, and in fact instrumental in the, in the height of the slave trade were Muslims. And a lot of the, the trade was done by Muslim traders who had enslaved Africans and sold them to, to the Europeans on the coast. And so these various cheap goods would be given to African middlemen or Arab uh, Muslim traders, and then in exchange for the Africans, who were then brought into the hold of the ships and would do what is called the crossing of the Middle Passage, which would cross from the Gold Coast to either the Caribbean or to the American South. Those, cro those crossings could take up to three or four months. It's very difficult with words to describe the horror of the ships with the slaves, the, the future slaves packed in like sardines, chained to each other. And not surprisingly, become those areas becoming the breeding ground for disease and death. Those sailing the ships were not immune. In fact, studies now have shown that many of the sailors died of diseases contracted in the quarters of where they had the, the, the future slaves held. Those slaves who survived the voice, voyage, well, first of all, was the trauma of being in, uh, captured, and then often taken for days to the coast, seeing for the first time in their lives white men, and then being put into this horrific scenario for three or four months. If they survived that, and then at the other end, either in the Caribbean or in uh, uh, America, being sold like cattle, uh, families being broken up. One of the problems uh, historians tr trace in the whole of the Caribbean society, particularly places like Jamaica, is the deliberate attempt to, to break up the families. 
All of this human suffering escapes the power today to describe in its enormity and hideousness. At its heart was a financial issue to provide financial capital for Britain and many of the luxuries that were enjoyed was on the basis of this. It's interesting that if a slave escaped and got to Britain itself, he'd be free. And many of the British, when, when, the, when the reformed communities began to, to emphasize the horror of these scenarios, many of them really didn't believe it. There were no things like video cameras or anything like that in those days. They couldn't see it, and they could only describe it in words. And they, they didn't believe it because it was an actual reality in Britain. And so when a number of reformed men and women begin to argue, this is wrong. It's wrong. It's a crime in terms of human goodness and kindness. It's a crime biblically. It's not surprising the retort was given along the following lines. Sir William Young, a man who owned the personal owner of some 1,300 slaves, said, if we free them and end the slave trade, commerce in the West Indies will be ruined, and the whole existence of the British Empire will be jeopardized. One man, Mr. Grosvenor, in uh, the parliamentary debates that started to take place in the 1790s and early 1800s, could say the slave trade was not an amiable trade, but neither was the trade of a butcher an amiable trade. Yet a mutton chop was nevertheless a very good thing. And you could see it's horrible. You can see the reasoning there. Even a man like John Newton, reformed evangelical, at the time he was converted. Uh, was involved in the slave trade, did not immediately give it up. He was still persistent and for about three years until he had a stroke at the age of 28, which prevented him from going to sea. Looking back, he would later see it as God's providential work in his life. And he would eventually come to see the immoral nature of the slave trade. But he could say at the time, I think I should have quitted the slave trade sooner had I considered it as I now do to be unlawful and wrong. But I never had a scruple upon this head of the time. What I did, I did ignorantly, considering it as the line of life which divine providence had allotted me. And uh, we could instance a number of individuals, reformed individuals in the 18th century, who should have known better, who should have thought through the issue. One thinks also of George Whitfield. Remarkable preacher. The blot, I think, that stands on his character is that he was responsible for introducing uh, slavery into Georgia. He had purchased a place near Savannah, uh, which we hoped to become an orphanage. He couldn't find workers for it, and it was he who introduced slave labor into Georgia. He emphasized that masters needed to be kind, share the gospel with them, bring Christ to them, but nonetheless, he was an ignorant participant in this horrific affair of the 18th century. Now, opposition to the slave trade does not begin among the Reformed, but it'll be they who carry it through to its completion. The first to oppose the slave trade actually were the Quakers. So much so that by 1760, you could not be a Quaker in good standing in a Quaker community and be a slave owner. But by the end of the century, it's a number of reform men, and if we had time, we could look at the leading man, William Wilberforce, who, in 17, born in 1759, died in 1833, was a, a ne'er-do-well, came from some wealth, went up to uh, uh, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, 
Spent four years playing cards, partying, uh, didn't go to any lectures, didn't write any papers, got his BA at the end of it. The 18th century is not a good time for British universities. He was typical of many of the aristocracy of the day. And uh, had nothing to do with his life, really. He was, thought he'd run for parliament, became elected the uh, MP for Hull. And um, when he did show up in parliament, he really didn't take much interest in politics, uh, something of an anomaly, and uh, decided to do what was known as the Grand Tour, where he would tour various cities of Europe, enjoying himself for six to eight months, and uh, took on the tour a book by a man named Philip Doddridge on the progress of religion in the soul, and God saved him. And initially began to think, well, God must be calling me to be a minister of the gospel. And uh, he had heard of John Newton. He knew of John Newton because John Newton had links with his family early on. His mother, actually, his father, rather, had been involved, uh, uh, had been a friend of Newton's. His father had gone to hear Newton, but his father had died young, and his mother had wanted nothing to do with Newton. But he knew of Newton, and so... There's a great scene in the early 1780s where he's being converted and he wants to go and talk to Newton. The problem is he doesn't want to be seen entering the man's house in any case anybody thinks he's a fanatic. And so he walks around the block four or five times before he gets the courage up to go and knock on the door and uh, speak to Newton. And uh, at some point in the succeeding months, he tells Newton, I think the Lord is calling me to pastoral ministry. What do you think? Newton says to him, absolutely not. The Lord has placed you in a, a critical position for the good of the nation. You need to stay there as a member of parliament. At, this point, at that point in time, out of about 250 to 280 members of parliament, probably only three or four of them would be converted individuals. And... Um, Within a few months of that incident, uh, uh, Wilberforce could write in his diary, God has set before me two two goals. The reformation of manners, that is the reformation of British society, and the abolition of the slave trade. When he first began to raise the issue in Parliament that they should end the slave trade, he'd be booed, hissed, jeered, yelled at, you've ever seen the goings-on of the uh, British Parliament, um, things were rougher even back in those days. And uh, he endured all kinds of abuse, ridicule, public, to his face, in the press, but he persevered. And uh, he is the critical figure, a man of reformed convictions. He is the critical figure that God used as a channel and an instrument to bring the slave trade to an end in 1807, which is being celebrated actually next year, 200 years. Uh, That did not mean the end of slavery. He then spent the rest of his life seeing slavery ended in the British Empire. And only a few months before, or only a few weeks before he died in 1833, he heard that the slaves had been freed. It's a fabulous uh, story of a man with reformed convictions, uh, persevering in the doing of good in the public realm and the public sphere. The man I want to focus on, though, is Abraham Booth. And um, Booth was a 
came from what we would describe today as a lower-class background. He was a stocking weaver in his teens. He was born in 1734, converted in the 1750s. He soon felt led to become a pastor, was appointed so by a congregation. And uh, in his early years, he was actually Arminian, theologically at the opposite end of the spectrum of, uh, from Calvinism. But began, as he read the scriptures, became convinced of Calvinism until the point in 1768 he had undergone a complete rethinking of where he stood and had embraced Reformed theology. He wrote a book called The Reign of Grace, which uh, Scottish Presbyterian theologian John Murray could, of the 20th century could say it was one of the most eloquent, moving expositions of the subject of divine grace in the English language. The Reign of Grace, it's... I think it's been in print ever since. It's certainly in print today. It was this book that opened his way for a move to London. He was called to a very prestigious church in the heart of London, an area of professional men. He felt very inadequate. Um, he was moving now among what we would describe today as middle class. He came from a much lower class background. One of the things he determined to do was to sharpen his education. He'd had no education beyond the age of 12. He began to take uh, languages, particularly Greek, Latin, and French, from a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest who taught him all, to the point that he was conversant in terms of the reading of those. And uh, over the years of his life, he would die in 1806, his congregation came to love him deeply. And after his death, and this is very, I think this is a very moving tribute, after his death, someone wrote in the Church Minute book, the following words, he sought not ours, but us. He sought not ours, but us. I think it says, oh, it says a whole, gives you a whole window into his, in, into his love for people. It's that love that motivates him in 1792 to preach a sermon that became a key instrument in the hands of abolitionists in Britain against the slave trade. And the title of the sermon is full title, Commerce in the Human Species and the Enslaving of Innocent Persons Inimical, or Inimical, I-N-I-M-I-C-A-L, Inimical to the Laws of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. And uh, he begins by emphasizing that one of our callings as Christians is to be benevolent. Benevolence is to be, shown to, be to, be, to, be, is to be shown by Christians to other human beings insofar as we are social beings surrounded by multitudes of our fellow human beings. In fact, you could say cordial affection for our neighbors is one of the great ends of a reformed ministry, developing a love for other human beings and showing that in life in many, many ways. And it is on that basis, he could say, that I am prepared to speak publicly against the slave trade. Obviously, he has to deal with the fact that there's large parts of the scriptures that talk about slavery. He goes back in the Old Testament and says, obviously, that not every type of slavery is condemned by the Bible. For example, Hebrews could be sold into servitude. Um, but, he said, those things, that is when they were 
uh, for things of such as theft and insolvency. But he could say that servitude could only last six years, and then in the year of Jubilee, they need to be freed. Well, he argues, there is no way the British can justify their slavery, which is lifelong, by appealing to this sort of slavery, because that was only for six years. Well, then what about the enslavement of Gentiles in the Old Testament? Well, Booth argues, first, God did not require his people to enslave. He permitted it. Important difference. And then secondly, he said, the Gentiles who were enslaved were taken from the nations surrounding Israel. There is no warrant for Britain to go halfway round or halfway down the hemisphere to Africa and enslave nations. Why aren't they enslaving Europeans? That would be the, the parallel to the Old Testament. In other words, then, the Old Testament slavery uh, context, the, the two types of slavery in the Old Testament, are not a warrant for uh, the British institution of slavery. Moreover, and he then goes to biblical passages where he says, when God allowed slavery, it, he emphasized that there must be, it, the slaves must be treated kindly. Oppression and cruelty were expressly forbidden. Now, by 1792, William Wilberforce had been making public, in variety of means, the horrors of the slave trade. In fact, one of the major means was uh, John Newton. He had John Newton come before Parliament and give a report. Uh, I, have a very, uh, I have a good friend who uh, has an expensive hobby, which is buying very old Bibles. And uh, a number of years ago, he phoned me and he said he'd, he'd seen a, a Bible, a, a King James Version, 1612 King James Version, advertised for sale for about 55,000 US dollars. Well, what did I think of it as a sale? Now, he has the money, he could buy it. So I, I said, well, really, I, I don't know if that's a good price or not. I, but I, have, I said, I have an acquaintance in Philadelphia who is a bookseller, antiquarian bookseller. I said, let's call him. And so we both made the trip down to Philadelphia, went to see this gentleman, and I could, it was a remarkable day. This man had, in his personal collection, every Bible of the, of the seven, 16th century, a first edition, except for the William Tyndale New Testament. And I've taught on that period before, and he gave me in the morning like four hours, and it was just brilliant. Anyway, my friend ended up, this, this man actually had told my friend on the phone that he could sell him a King James Version, uh, 1612, for about 30000 So my friend thought that was a steal, so that's why we went. My friend also bought, actually, I, in some ways, it's, actually, it's, it's as precious as that, because there are quite a number of KJVs of that period that are still around. My friend also bought John Newton's personal uh, annotated copy of the minutes of the debates about the slave trade in 1790 to 92. And you've got all the public, published debate and then Newton's comments on various speeches and so on. It's, it's just a gem. And he bought that for 8,000. And uh, so William Wilberforce then brought Newton into Parliament. And it became, started to become known what was going on in the slave trade. And so that's why Booth could say, 
It is deceitful arts that are used to enslave Africans, iniquitous violence with which they are subjected, the cruel manner in which they are stowed on board ships. None of that is legitimated by any of the, the, the statements about slavery in the Old Testament. And then moreover, and I think this is where he makes his critical point, he, in the Old Covenant, God was covenanting with a people, a nation, and he gave permission for that nation to have slaves. He has not made a covenant with a people, an ethnic group, since that covenant with Israel. Now, at this point, Booth is actually flying in the face of certain British Reformed thinkers in the Puritans who believe that God made a covenant with the British nation. You can find that among some of the Puritan writers in the 17th century, not all of them. But I think Booth's right. God has not made a covenant with any other nation but that nation. The new covenant is for all nations, not just for one people group, not one ethnic group. It is for all nations. And so certain stipulations that God allowed under the economy of the Old Testament cannot be transferred to the New Testament. And then he comes to the New Testament. And he argues that Christianity is the religion of truth and justice, of benevolence and peace. But the slave trade is barbarous, savage, unjust, and cruel. And then he said, what would you think if the Africans came to Britain and raided our coasts and enslaved some of our people? What would you feel? And what he's doing there, he's, he's turning the tables to try to make men and women in his congregation, but others who would read the sermon... Put yourself in the place of those who we've enslaved. And then he can quote a number of New Testament texts. Christians are to love their enemies. Love their enemies. And the Africans, he said, that we're enslaving, we don't even, they're not even our enemies. But we're to love our enemies. Do good to them that hate them. If our sovereign Lord requires benevolence and active love to our enemies, both reasons he cannot require any less to those who are not our enemies, namely these Africans. What about the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12? All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. This is at the heart of gospel ethics, he argued. And no wonder then he could end by saying, what a contrast all of this is to the slave trader. We as Christians are to spread goodness and peace and love. The slave trader is a man who spreads and propagates human misery a man who is completely fitted for universal abhorrence. Now, one text he doesn't quote is uh, 1 Timothy 1.9. And if you want to look at it later, you'll see there's a list of evildoers for which the law is given. And among them are men-stealers. And I think for those who would argue, well, the New Testament does not condemn slavery, I think there are subtle hints of a condemnation of slavery. 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 10, where God says the law is given uh, not for the for, for good, but in terms of the, the, the structuring of society against various types of evildoers, of which one are men-stealers, and the, the rabbis of Jesus' day always understood that to mean those who capture men, enslave men, and sell them. Or one could think of the whole background of Philemon, where uh, Paul clearly indicates 
to Philemon, I think, his desire for Philemon to free Onesimus. And I'm confident, he says, you will do not only what I asked, namely receive him back as a brother, but you'll do more than I've asked, which is so free him that he can come back and minister to me. But that's, I would, that, detailing all that could occupy us uh, quite a while. The critical point here is Booth's going to Scripture. He didn't argue his case on uh, civil grounds, but going to Scripture and arguing his case from the Word of God against the slave trade. And then he ends by saying two things. One is, what can we do? We need to pray. We need to pray that God would, uh, uh, would interpose and abolish the detestable traffic in man. We need to pray for the conversion of Africans. We need to pray for the gradual emancipation of the West Indian slaves. But he also emphasized we need to, to act. We need to do what he calls prudent, peaceable, steady efforts to procure the total abolition of, the, of that criminal traffic and of the cruel slavery consequent upon it. And then he recommends publicly the society, a society that William Wilberforce had formed called the Society for the Abolition of the African Slave Trade. You need to give money to it. You need to pray for their efforts. You need to support it. And in fact, Booth went further and was involved in gathering signatures for petitions during the 1790s. And one of the reasons why Parliament shifted was because of the overwhelming numbers of men and women who petitioned an end to the slave trade. The church where Booth preached that sermon and where he pastored for many years no longer stands. In fact, I suspect, unless you've read The Reign of Grace or know a little bit about uh, the context in which Booth uh, 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 ministered, you, this might have been the first time you've ever heard of Abraham Booth. There's nowhere in London where he lived for most of his life and ministered that I could say that you could go and find a plaque to honor his memory. The same is true for William Wilberforce. If you go to the Clapham Church today, there's very little there that would indicate his part being involved in that church. It's a little pile of pamphlets at the back, a uh, couple of pennies you can buy. Very little in terms of to remember these men. And yet, they are remembered in one sense because all of the great spiritual tide of blessing that came in the 19th century to Britain, morally, was hinged on their work. When we think of the Victorian era, we sometimes think, we see it often through the eyes of a Charles Dickens or a, a George Eliot, and uh, we think that often many of the evangelicals were hypocrites and those who were reformed because Dickens and George Eliot didn't like them. But there was much good that was done. In fact, sometimes I've thought that the, the Western world, in the English-speaking Western world, is living on the moral capital of the 19th century. And we're squandering it quickly. And there is great blessing that comes. And I think these men and women were right that God, could God fully bless England when England was involved in such an iniquitous traffic? The application today, there are probably a number of applications. One that I find I'm exercised about is the whole issue, which revolves around the same, print, same issue at the heart of the slave trade and the heart of slavery. What is a human being? 
Who is human? And the only way the British justified it was to view the Africans as subhuman. The issue is one for us as well, because we wrestle not in that area specifically, but another area that deals with medical ethics, the whole issue of abortion. And if Europe is any indicator, the other end of that, euthanasia. What constitutes humanness? Let me encourage you as evangelicals to, and reformed believers to think, as Booth encouraged his congregation, one, to pray, and then to act. That as God gives you opportunity and context to do something in the larger context of society, to do that which is good. William Wilberforce could say in the early 1800s, when England was at war with France, and there was great likelihood that Napoleon would invade England and overwhelm her, my only solid hopes for the well-being of my country depend not so much on her fleets and armies, and England was the great power of the day, not so much on the wisdom of our rulers as on the persuasion that she still contains many who in a degenerate age love and obey the gospel of Christ and that their intercession and prayers may still be prevalent and that for the sake of their prayers, heaven look upon us with an eye of favor. There's much that we could learn from this period of time. May God help us realize that the gospel that God has given us first concerns the salvation of human beings in, in an eternal sense, but it must have an impact on the surrounding fabric of the society in which we, we, are, we are placed. May God enable us to be doers of good works and zealous for good works as he leads us. Let us pray. O oh God, our thoughts echo the words of Wilberforce that it is because of those who love the gospel of the Lord Jesus that you will look with favor upon this nation. Lord, have mercy upon us. Enable us to so live and act that we adorn that which we preach and say we believe. Bring to an end in this nation and in Canada where I live the horror of abortion. Enable us to see justice done. Enable us to be part of your great work in spreading the gospel and in being kind and benevolent to our fellow men and women. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.